Well, in Matthew chapter 10, we read of the words that uh, the Apostle, uh, the Apostle, our Lord Jesus spoke to the Apostles, to the disciples, warning them that because of their love and their devotion to him, because of their commitment to the word of God, that they would be brought before governors and kings. Let me read to you the words of, of our Lord. He said, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. In today's passage, we find the fulfillment of these words in the life of the Apostle Paul. He is brought before the governor, before Felix. And we can be excused in a, uh, in a sense uh, to have a sense of deja vu as we come to this, to this chapter. It's, it's become, becoming more and more recurrent and in fact it's not going to change in the next couple of chapters that Paul is facing trial. He's having to provide a defense. And uh, in fact, at least three more times uh, or at least three times, uh, Paul ha has to be appear before um, governors in the coming chapters, before Festus in the next chapter, and uh, before Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Festus uh, as well in the, in the next couple of chapters. And before this, we, we have the, uh, Paul appearing before the Sanhedrin, or even in the, in the stair uh, in the uh, in the stairs going up to the to the Fort Antonia as he addressed the Jews that were seeking to to lynch him it is in fact uh, the end of the book of, of of acts is filled with these trials with these defenses these apologias apologies of christianity uh, provided by paul today we have one of those. We have a full uh, display of Roman uh, jurisprudence. What we have before us in this chapter is uh, a Roman uh, courtroom scenario that is uh, in accordance with Roman law. It has all the distinctive markers of the, the Roman law. And it probably uh, was recorded as such. And one wonders if... The way that Luke was able to uh, find this information was by uh, scouring through the, the records of, the, of this procedure. As Paul was later sent to Rome by boat, certainly the records of his trials would have been sent with him that others would have been able to uh, get contextualized. This is the, the procedures of a normal court case in Rome. Members of the prosecution would come and appear before the governor, before the judge, to report its case. The accuser would stand first and lay the accusation. And then the, the, um, the defendant would respond to the charges. And finally... The judge, ideally, would make a, a pronouncement, would say, this is what I've decided. 
And a lot of power was afforded to the judge. He could decide things there and then. He had a lot of power. At the close of, of the, at the beginning of this chapter, it is about a courtroom. But I want to say that this sermon is not so much about the court procedures. It is the story of two men. There is a story, actually, of the one man. His name was Felix. It's the story of Paul, yes. Uh, the book of Acts, this part, this section is about Paul and his, his interactions. But this chapter, it, it is about this man, Felix, this governor. He was a bad man. He wasn't a good governor. He was bad in every sense. He was corrupt. And this is not because the Bible says so. And because we see it in, in, in his dealings this, uh, in this passage, historically, Roman historians have painted Felix in a, in a terrible light. He was corrupt. He stole his wife, this wife that we speak, uh, hear of in this passage. We'll speak a little bit more. I'll speak about it later. Tacitus, the Roman historian, he said of, of Felix that he had the office of a king, and yet he ruled it with the mind of a slave. He had an opportunity, and he blew it. That's what happened. He delayed. He procrastinated. His name was Antonius Felix. He has become uh, the governor. He has ruled over Judea from 52 to 59. And the only reason why he was in the place that he was, and again, this is not hearsay, this is uh, ample, there's ample evidence of this in, in, a, in history books, was because his brother was very good friends with the emperor of Rome, Claudius. So he wasn't there because he was qualified or had immense qualities. No, he was there because of family friendships. And his rule over Judea, in, uh, in the days of Paul, was appalling. He was filled with riots and dissensions, with rebellions. And he, he did manage to quell re the rebellions. He did manage to, to stop them. There was no big uprising uh, that, uh, that we know of, but there was small pockets of, of uprisings everywhere. People were not happy under his rule. And how, you know how he managed to quell all of those rebellions? He killed more people than you can imagine. He would, he would stop a riot, but the body count would be through the roof. And you can imagine that this just causes further strife down the road. The Jews hated him, by the way. The, the, the Jews that here seem to be so friendly with him, it is said that they hated him because of the way, the violence of this man. So let us look, number one, at the prosecution. From verse 1 to verse 9, we have the accusation, the, the prosecutions, the, the charges that were brought. They are summarized there from verse 1 to verse 9. The, the, they come, five days later, we read in verse 1, five days after uh, what had happened in the previous chapter, they, they come to, the, to Caesarea. They bring an orator with them. An orator would be a, a lawyer, 
An orator would be someone who was well-versed in Roman jurisprudence, and they bring one with them. They, they spare no expense. They get a professional lawyer. They don't want to risk uh, losing this case. They, they don't want to lose much time. Five days is not too long to put together a prosecution and to make a, an ex, a, a difficult trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Five days is, is quite fast, actually. They, they were diligent. They, they arranged everything as fast as possible. They even hired, judging by the name, a Roman orator. They got some a Gentile to do their bidding. Matthew Henry says, so diligent are men to do evil. And in fact, it is true. So, and Tertullius, uh, he is a professional. Look at how he starts his, uh, his address Seeing that through we, you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with thankfulness. This is called uh, in the Latin, uh, a captatio benevolenti. It is a, 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 a way of starting to garner attention to butter up, as uh, perhaps some of us would say, the, the Tertullus is buttering up the conversation. Everyone does this from time to time. If you have something you, you want to say, if you want to convince someone, you're going to use uh, all manner of tools available to do so. <laughs> but the problem is it, it, that with Tertullus, this is clearly a lie. The nation was not in, in, enjoying peace and prosperity. He was just uh, buttering up the, the, the man. He was far from having a remarkable government. Quite the contrary. He was terrible in administering. It was, there were revolts all around. The way he achieved peace, if there is any peace, was by killing and the Jews knew this. And that's why they were so uh, uh, keen on, on getting Paul to be convicted by, by, by Felix at this point. He was a hanging judge, as they say. And in the following verses, verses 5, five and 6, we, we read the accusation. It's a threefold uh, accusation. What, what is it that the accusation is accusing Paul of doing? Number one is a, a political or religious insurrectionist. He is a, a, someone who is seeding rebellion in the, in the nation. According to Tertullus, this man, Paul, he's a schismatic. He calls him a plague. Verse 5, this man is a plague. He is just... Uh, uh, conta contagiating and uh, it's a contagion that is going through the, the whole nation and through the whole Eastern Europe, the, through the whole Eastern Empire, wherever it goes it's a plague uh, and we need it's a pest we need to get rid of him he's a threat, oh mighty Felix to the Pax Romana to the peace of Rome that's the first charge but not only that, he is accused, number two, of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he's, he's not only a, a, a political religious insurrectionist, he's also a heretic. He is the main leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. 
the Nazarenes, those, those nasty uh, people or group that no one likes. It's a slur to call someone a Nazarene in, in the New Testament days. He, what he is being, saying of Paul here is that this man, Paul, he doesn't belong to Judaism. It's a sect. It's heresy that he professes. It's a, he's the ringleader. He's, the, he's the, 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 the main guy of this group of people that are called the Nazarenes. And third, and perhaps the more objective charge, was that Paul was sacrilegious. sacrilegious in his actions, that he profaned the temple by bringing Gentiles into the temple courts. And this is an accusation that, that is quite useful for the Jews to, to put forward, and perhaps one that they are silently hoping that at least if none of the others uh, pans out, that this one would stick. Because if this is the case, if Paul is proven guilty of having profaned the temple, Roman law stated that the, the governor had to hand over Paul to the Jews so that they might judge him according to their law. If this accusation is proven, Felix could or should hand over the apostle to the Sanhedrin. What a terrible situation here. What a terrible situation in this accusation. An unworthy but albeit very experienced ruler like Felix being flattered by Tertullus while an apostle who did nothing but good throughout the world is considered to be a pestilence, to be a plague, to be a, uh, something to be uh, put out of the world. And this is not by chance. The Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's not presenting us this picture just because, uh, just because. He's presenting us this picture because, as we've seen, he is keenly, uh, he is trying to make parallels between our Lord Jesus and Paul and the way that our Lord Jesus was taken uh, into, into the cross in Jerusalem as Paul is being taken to Rome. This is clearly something that is intentioned by Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit in this passage. The accusation here that he had profaned the temple, that he was a blasphemer, all of this is, is meant to convey to us that Paul is trotting in the footsteps of Christ as the gospel of Christ goes out into all the world. And Tertullus makes a, a very uh, interesting suggestion here. Verse 6, he says that Paul, as he tried to profane the temple and he wanted to judge him according to our law, that Paul was saved by this Lysias, who with great violence uh, took him out of our hands. It is not true. This is an outright lie. All of it is an outright lie, but this is not true. You know what happened? We, we looked at it a few weeks ago in the temple courts. That was not judging according to the law. That was lynching by a mob. They were raised, they were riled up by the, some of the Jews from, from Asia there, and they were trying to lynch him. Oh, they were trying, we were, we were just trying, uh, our wonderful Tritul, uh, Felix, to, to judge him according to our law. That is not the case. 
And in fact, it's a probably a foolish accusation to make in the presence of a Roman governor to say that the Roman uh, centurion, that, that the Roman um, commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, uh, was wrong. It's like you're accusing a Roman, uh, uh, you're accusing a Roman official in front of a Roman uh, authority. That's probably not going to garner much attention or much sympathy. But he concludes, Tertullus concludes his statement by saying that Felix could confirm all of this and all the accusations that he was hearing by listening to the members uh, of the of the Sanhedrin that were there with him including the Ananias, the high priest. You can tell that this is a serious thing for the Ananias, the high priest, to have come. They spared no expense. They got the big men and the, the big honchos to, to be there. The entire sin scene is not only reminiscent of the, of the situation, uh, of the episode of our Lord Jesus being with, uh, in front of Pontius Pilate and in front of the high priest, but it is also reminiscent of John the Baptist with Herod, where a man of integrity, a man who has done no wrong, is being brought before a man who, and judged by men who are filled with dishonesty and corruption. It is often the case in, the, in, the, in this world that is so opposed to the gospel of Christ. So what is Paul's defense in, quick, uh, or in a quick manner? Paul's defense before Felix can be or is summarized uh, in verse 10 to verse 20 or 21. And it's basically to, to unpack and to... And to Destroy the arguments that were made by, by Tertullus. He also opens up by being polite, but notice that he, he doesn't go beyond the truth. Yes, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation. That's true. He's pointing to him, you have experience, so I'm, uh, uh, in doing this, you, you have dealt with these kind of things I, uh, before, so I'm cheerfully defending myself before you. And, and perhaps I wonder if in this, uh, it's kind of like a nod and a wink from Paul saying, you know these Jews. You've been a judge of this nation for many years. You know how duplicitous they can be, how, how, or how, how deceiving uh, they can be, how opportunistic they are. And he mentions verse 11. I was only 12 days in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. I, I could hardly have had time to cause any civil unrest in this time, he suggests, verse 11, no more than 12 days since I went up uh, to Jerusalem to worship, and no one found me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting the crowd, not even in the synagogue, which was something that he would do normally, uh, ordinarily, but it, I think Paul led by the Spirit, of course, as always. But Paul, knowing that there, knew, having heard from the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church that there was quite a lot of, of uh, suspicion on the part of the Jews in Jerusalem, he withheld himself from doing any of these activities. 
And the reality is no one came forward to say, you're lying. Because it was true. He didn't even, he was not even found in the, in the synagogue or in the city center. Paul was saying that he wasn't being subversive. That he wasn't being a rebel, uh, an inciter of rebellion. He never was found arguing with anyone. And they have no evidence, Paul says. They have no evidence that I've done anything like this. And then in verse 14 to verse 16, Paul defends himself against the second accusation. That, that he was the, the, the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And here, he defends, having defended himself against being a political agitator, uh, a causer of sedition and agitation, uh, he makes a, a public confession before Felix. He says he, he, he denies of being, that he's a schismatic, but then he says, but actually, yes, I do belong to the way that these men call the sect. I do. I am a Christian. I am a follower of the way. I will not deny it. But then he goes on to say, but they are not a sect. Look at how Paul uh, cleverly crafts his argument. But I, this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, they call a sect, he's not admitting that it is a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. All that we do in this way that they call a sect is follow the Old Testament religion or the fulfillment of the Old Testament religion. It's the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that, these, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive, with, uh, always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. What is Paul saying here? Yes, I belong to this group, but no, I'm, they are not a sect. And, I, and you could actually say, but no, I'm not their ringleader. I'm not their uh, chief priest. What emerges here is a valuable lesson for us, brothers and sisters. What, 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 is, uh, being, what we are being told here should serve as a, a lesson for us in how to deal with these things. We may, for example, be accused in not, the not-so-distant future because of our faith of all kinds of manner of, of, of uh, erroneous and false accusations. And there is only one correct way, the way that Paul deals with it. Yes, to, lay, to be truthful at all times. That's, that's to be truthful at all times. There is only one correct course of action, to tell the truth, to be clear, to be direct. You see, Paul is, is completely unlike the politicians of our own day. When asked questions, the politicians of our day, they, they, they answer a completely different uh, question. It's, it's, a, it's a, a masterpiece. And you, you listen to Prime Minister questions on, uh, is it on Wednesdays. 
it's a masterpiece of avoiding to address the, the, the question that was asked, while still sounding like you're saying something that is speaking to that effect. I think you need to be very, prof very proficient in those things to be able to, to make it to that extent. But Paul is not like that. He answers directly. He has been in the temple, yes, performing a ritual of cleansing. And yes, I do belong to the way. But no, it is not a sect. I worship the God of our fathers. I believe in everything laid down in the law and the prophets. I hold to all of these things. And if this is the charge that I belong to the way, then I'm guilty as charged. Now, after many years, he says, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Keep this in mind for, for a later reference. Money was mentioned now. I, I suppose Felix's ears just, just uh, popped up and his eyes uh, became wide open. Oh, dear, money. It's, it's, but let's, we'll look at it in a moment. But he mentions, doesn't he? in the midst of which some Jews from Asia, Asia um, found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, and they, they ought to have been here. You know what Paul is doing here? He's quite crafty. He's saying, where are my accusators? Where are my accusers, sorry? Where are the ones who, who saw me doing these things? This whole case is a sham. It has no legal standing. Where are they? Those that are here with you, before you, those that bring this accusation, they weren't there to see it. But let them say something if they found me doing anything wrong, if they found any wrongdoing me, uh, in me uh, while I stood before the council. Unless it, it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. Paul's point is being clear. This whole, this whole court case has no legs to stand on. And Paul defends himself thus from the third charge that he profaned the temple. If there are no, no witnesses, then this case doesn't stand. And now you ask. Oh, and he finishes by mentioning once again the resurrection. And now, let me just draw a parallel before we move to the, to the, to the third point, the outcome of this. Uh, on the one hand, and we've seen this, Jesus is being, uh, there is a parallel between Paul and Jesus in this, in this whole section. And the, but the parallel seems to not fit perfectly. What is the big difference here between Jesus and, and Paul? is that Jesus remained silent. Jesus remained silent before the high priest. There is a connection, and I think it is clear, between Jesus' trial and Paul's trial as he goes to Rome. But the parallel here doesn't seem to fit. And I think it is appropriate for us to ask, was Paul wrong to speak? Was Paul not being Christ-like in the presence of Felix? Was it a sin? Should they have remained uh, uh, silent? 
For some in, in Christianity, it seems like so. It seems like that should be the case. They should have, he should have not spoken. You know those bracelets that say, uh, what would Jesus do? And I think it is a wonderful thing that we can ask ourselves in, in difficult decisions in our lives, what would Jesus do? Or perhaps what would Jesus have me do is perhaps, uh, probably the better question. And the reason why I don't like that bracelet or the idea behind the bracelet, what would Jesus do, is because it breaks down in places like this. You're not called to, to do what Jesus would do. You're called to do what Jesus would have you do. What do I mean? Why was, why was Jesus silent before Pilate and before the high priest? He was silent for your sake and for my sake. He was silent, uh, silent for our sake to accomplish the work of salvation. Paul was not saving anyone. He is not performing a work of atonement for anyone. Paul is not bound to do the work of saving. Yes, our Lord, the Messiah, was commissioned to die in the place of sinners, to pray the price of the atonement, and therefore he remained quiet. But that's not the norm for us. We can defend ourselves. We can speak. So you see, it's not always appropriate to do what Jesus uh, did. We cannot always follow him in the paths, into the paths that he trod, because he alone is the Savior. And when it comes to work, uh, to the work of saving, I know I'm saying something that can be misinterpreted, but when it comes to the work of sa to the saving work that he's performed, we cannot follow in his footsteps. He doesn't want us to follow in his footsteps. He alone is a savior. That's why it is not inadequate in the case like this to defend yourself, to speak. That being said, let's look at Felix finally. I said that the sermon was about the man. So let us look at him. Verse 22 to the end, verse 27, we find him uh, at uh, more at ease. He, 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 he knew about the way, but he procrastinated. He adjourned the proceedings, although he had all the, 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 the basis uh, and all the duty. He had the duty to call off this sham of a court case. He had Lysias' letter. Why does he want to hear Lysias again, by the way? That's so weird. Lysias already sent a letter to Felix in, the, in chapter 23 saying that he found no guilt in, in, uh, in Paul, that he found no wrongdoing in him. So why do you want to listen to him? Is there any other reason, oh Felix, why you want to, to hold Paul in your, in your custody? And I would say yes. There are plenty of reasons when you're corrupt and an evil governor like, like Lysias, uh, Felix is. Number one, if he releases Paul at this moment, what do you think the Jews are going to do? Oh, they're going to be upset. Better not 
cause them to be angry at this moment. Let's just keep him in custody. Number two, I think money is certainly an issue here. You read it, actually. Luke makes a mention of this, although he doesn't quite put the, the, the two things together. I think they are connected. That he was hoping to receive a bribe to release Paul. Why? Because Paul has just mentioned that he, that he had connections and, and a network that, that allowed him to, gar, uh, to, to gather this amount of money to bring to the, to the church in Jerusalem. The guy has access to money. Let's see if I can coerce him to give me some. That's what Felix is, is here doing. He's keeping him against, against all justice, against Roman law. But yet, there we have it, corruption at its finest. It's not just in the 21st century. It's a thing that is pervasive to human history. Why, you ask? Because, Claude, uh, because Felix has an unregenerate heart. He's a sinner in need of repentance. He's a sinner that needs to be brought to repentance, to have a transformed heart. And Felix goes and, and calls upon Paul a number of times to, to come and speak to him, initially to hear about this way. But when Paul doesn't pull any punches, and by the way, note the, the, the character of Paul. He's there being held against his will. He's there being held against law and against reason. Uh, and yet, when he's given the opportunity to stand before Felix, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He, was, he, he speaks of the faith in Christ. He reasons about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. He speaks about the resurrection. That's what he does. With the trial at stake, it is astonishing to read that Paul was actually just fine with it. And on these occasions, he preached the gospel to him. As a reminder to us that we should and we can, we can and we should use every opportunity for gospel purposes. Paul thought about the needs of others before he thought about his own needs. Instead of wailing in self-pity and, 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 and crying about everything that is happening, he viewed his cell as an opportunity to witness. He viewed his, un uh, un I was going to say unfortunate circumstances. They are not unfortunate in the sense that they are brought about by the Lord. But he viewed his trialing circumstances as a platform to, and as a tool to witness. He viewed the cell where he was held as a pulpit to proclaim the message. How often... Do we use our trialing circumstances to preach the gospel to ourselves? In a, in a, in a Psalm 42 fine, uh, sort of way, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for you shall yet see is the light of his countenance. We preach to ourselves and we use it as a tool to testify to others. Look, I know you, you look at my life and it's this right mess and, uh, and this is happening. But here I want to testify to you. This is not what holds me 
Well, this is not what's going to hold me from, from, from being joyful and, and from, from being hopeful in the Lord. Even Drusilla came with, with uh, Felix to, the, to these uh, surgeries with, with the Apostle Paul. Let me just say a little bit to you about Drusilla. Because you know, part of the, 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 the good thing about the book of Acts is that it is historical. This is not a myth that was pieced together by, by some kind of, by a, a sect of Nazarenes uh, meeting in an in a, in a upper room and deciding, oh, well, we're going to lie about this, we're going to lie about this, we're going to make one book, uh, Matthew is going to make one book. This was not a conspiracy as so often the accusers of Christianity want to make it out to be. This is real men and real women. And Drusilla is a real woman who lived 2,000 years ago. She was the, the daughter of Herod Agrippa. You've read about Herod Agrippa in this book of Acts. He met with a terrible death that is recorded in Acts 12. He, she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. You know the Herod the Great from the, the birth narratives, the one who slayed all those innocent children. We are told by church historians, uh, not by church historians, by Roman historians, that Drusilla was a woman of, uh, how do I say this, uh, of a beauty that was unparalleled in the whole empire. Her beauty was legendary, one says. And Governor Felix, this, this governor, he was so enamored with her, he so much had to have her that he seduced her, while, although she was already married to another person, to another king. And again, the parallels are there, and they're just too big not to notice and not to mention. What was the story of John the Baptist? With, with, with Herod Antipas, who acquired his, his, Herodias from his brother Philip, the parallels are just unmistakable. And in light of these parallels, that uh, Felix had stolen a wife, seduced a wife. Now note what Paul was preaching to him. I, I just turned out from it. Let me just turn back there. 24. Look at what Paul was preaching to him. And Luke makes mention. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. That's not really a good subject to good subject to pick with an adulterous man like Felix. Does it make sense now why he was trembling? Does it make sense now why was he was afraid? I think it makes perfect sense. I don't want to listen to you anymore. <laughs> I'm afraid. You're telling me I'm going to be judged. You're telling me that I'm going to suffer the wrath of God. Unless I trust in this Christ that you preach. But I, I, I need a more convenient time, he says. Uh, go away. I'll call you in a more convenient time. Now is not the time. He's not denying that those things are truthful. It's not, just not the time, he says. What a sad tale of how we act and how we behave. Paul reasons about righteousness and, and obeying the law to Felix's unrighteous heart. 
and he doesn't want to hear. You know, the Romans had, and I'm finishing, the Romans had a, a saying, it, it, uh, it's Latin again, carpe diem. Carpe diem was, was this saying that is, seize the day, seize the opportunity. It, it is uh, plastered all over our, so, uh, our culture nowadays. Seize the day. Be, uh, grab hold of the opportunity. People tattoo it on them to remind themselves that they are to seize every opportunity. You know what? Felix, he didn't. He didn't seize the opportunity. He instead, alongside legal perversion and long-term rejection of the gospel, because he knew about the Christians, that's what we read. It was not the first time that he had knowledge of this. This, this wasn't the first time he heard it. Long-term knowledge of the gospel, legal perversion, he also procrastinated one more time. And he went deeper and deeper. Again, historians, it's not biblical, but it, it, it is uh, the history uh, of these men. History tells us that he never had, found the, the more appropriate time. He sunk deeper and deeper into the quagmire of sin, into the, into the cesspool of iniquity. And his soul was lost because of his procrastination. That's the, that's the, t- the tale of, the, of this, this, the life of this man, Felix. Antonius Felix, a man who procrastinated with the most important decision of his life, could be written above his tombstone. How many souls are lost because of procrastination? How many souls are lost because of, by reason of delaying a decision? A conscience is awakened, a fear is felt, a a sense of impending doom comes, and you put it off by saying tomorrow, but not today. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop uh, of Liverpool, he, he has a book entitled Thoughts for Young Men. And he says this about the, the, the danger of putting off, of procrastinating. Do you think, he asks, you will have more convenient time to think about these things? So thought Felix and the Athenians to whom Paul preached, but he never came. The road to hell is paved with such ideas. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Time is short, brothers and sisters, my friends. Our days are brief. You could say that there is but one step between this life and death, and that step can be taken at any given moment. Let's not put off doing the right thing while waiting for a more convenient season. And if you're not a believer, don't put it off. If your soul has been awakened, this is the season. This is the time, because no better time may come. So often, no better time does come. We'll always find reasons to put it off, 
like Felix did. I'm sure he had his all. Uh, if you were to interview him now and ask him, why is it that you put it off? I'm sure he would have uh, come up with some, well, he probably now would have said it for no good reason whatsoever. But at the time, if you went to interview him, he would say to you, well, because, you know, if I go forward with this, I'm going to have to to destroy this whole family unit that I have with, with Drusilla and this is going to cause problems in this way and this is going to cause... I just need to settle this or this is not, this is not really the time I can, where I can make that decision. I'm sure you would have all kinds of good reasons to, to put it off. But there was no good reason to put it off. There is no good reason to put it off. The message for us, the message for a world dying in need of the grace of Christ is the message of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.